Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. You would remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read at from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So if you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to open up to Genesis chapter 4, uh, my guess is it's uh, pretty early in your Bible. And if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, we have some kind of dispersed around under the chairs. Feel free to grab one of those um, and open up to maybe page 2 or 3 um, where you'll find Genesis chapter 4. If, if you just don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to... Um, steal one of the Bibles under the chairs. Uh, so here is your pastor giving you permission to steal. But after last, the last sermon I did, I guess that may not be a surprise since I talked about me stealing stuff. So um, Genesis chapter four, starting in verse one. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to, to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother? He said, I, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You can have a seat. Thank you guys for being here this morning and, and as we uh, try to adapt to life in a barn, um, thank you. Uh, know that we are trying to follow what um, the orchard has asked us to do in regards to COVID um, protocols and things. And so we try to space out the seats uh, into kind of household clusters. When you get here, um, it, you know, we don't know how many people are in each, there's not assigned seats. So if you would like to, if you need to move chairs around, um, that's totally fine. Uh, just help us to try to 
to, as, as well as we can, um, respect those, those uh, uh, wishes um, in, in regards to trying to social distance. As we, oh, one other thing. Um, if you didn't get communion, there's communion at the back here and, and in the back over there. And kids, if you want to follow along, we do have some note sheets on the table over by the communion over there. That, so if, if you uh, would like to follow along with that, and adults, if you like to take notes and need a little guide, uh, well, I, I suppose you're welcome to the kids' note sheet as well, if you'd like. So let me pray uh, as we look into God's word. Uh, Lord, we... We come to your word this morning uh, with this very um, grave and sad story. And we, we pray that um, that it would sober us, that it would cause us to reflect on ourselves and on our own hearts. Lord, I pray that through this, we would see also the hope that you have in your son and in his death. Pray all this in your name. Amen. So when Jesus was on the earth, he would tell parables. And one of the most famous parables that he told was about a father who had two sons. And the younger son comes to Jesus and says to him, hey, uh, dad, I want my inheritance right now so that I can spend it how I want. Now, you need to understand in, in the culture of that day, this was maybe the highest insult that a son could pay to a father. Basically, what he's saying to his dad is, dad, I wish you were dead so that I could get my inheritance. I would rather have the inheritance than have you. So the father gives him the money, gives him his half of everything, and the son runs off, it says, and spends all of it on wild living. Meanwhile, the older son stays home and fulfills his role and his duty to his father, whose wealth has just been cut in half. Now, the wild younger son, it says he spends all of the money that, that he has, and a famine comes on the land, and, and he needs some money to eat, and so he begins to uh, feed pigs for someone. And he desires to even eat what the pigs are eating. He's so impoverished at this time. And, and, and as he thinks about it, he thinks, man, my father's servants live better than I do. Maybe... Just maybe if I go back to my father, not as a son, but as a servant, he'll take me in as a servant and I'll at least get some food to eat. I'll at least have a roof over my head. And so that's what he does. And, and, and it says that when he's coming to his father's house, his father sees him a long distance off and his father runs to him, it says, and his son falls on his knees and begins to repent of all the, the things that he's done. And the father says, no, 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 no. And he picks him up and he says, you are still my son. And he embraces him 
Embraces him not as a servant, but as a, a son. And though the son has spent half of the father's wealth, the father puts a robe on his back and a ring on his finger and he prepares a feast for the son in joy because his son is back. His son is not dead. Now here's where the parable gets interesting. It says that while this party is going on for the younger son, the older son is in the field working. Presumably doing what he's done the entire time, this younger son has been running off, gallivanting over the countryside, wasting his father's money, and the older son is in the field, and he hears this party going on, and he yells to another servant that's in the field. He says, hey, what's all this ruckus about? And the servant says, oh, didn't you hear? Your, your younger brother came home. He's alive and your dad has, is throwing a party for him because, because he's still alive. He's back. But it says that the older son is angry. The older brother is angry and, and he won't join the party. And so his father comes out into the field to him and begins to plead with him. But the older brother responds this way, the older brother says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father replies to the older son, you've always been with me. You've always been my son, but this younger son was lost and now he's found. And then Jesus ends the parable right there. A cliff ending. You see, when this, the younger son, when the younger brother returns, what we realize in the story is that the father's primary concern isn't his honor. The father's primary concern isn't his finances or his property, his the father's primary concern isn't even protecting himself from being hurt again by this younger son. His primary concern is his son's life. Is that his son is there with him. The older brother's concern, however, isn't for his brother. It's not even love and respect for his father or else he would join in his father's joy, right? No, the older brother's words reveal his heart. You never threw me a party. You never threw me a feast. I never got to have fun with my friends. He looked at his brother and said, I'm, I'm better. I deserve better because I've done better. But in reality, his heart was not better. In reality, outward, while outwardly it appeared that he was for his father because he dutifully worked for him, inwardly his heart had always been for himself, just like the younger brother at the beginning of the story. He looked better, but his heart doubted his father. He looked better, but his heart did not love his father just as much as the younger brother didn't at the start. Friends, that is self-righteousness. And that's what we're going to talk about 
this morning. You see, in our passage this morning, we see another older son, right? Another older brother. And he too is self-righteous. And we're going to see lived out physically what, is always, what was always true spiritually. That self-righteousness, my friends, kills faith. That self-righteousness kills faith. Church, here's my concern. My concern for us is this. Are we older sons? Am I an older son? When am I? How am I an older son? You see, I know and I would affirm that I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I am sure that many of you would say the same thing. Yes, I know that's what the Bible says. I'm saved by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus alone. But day by day, do I revert back to an older son kind of self-righteousness where I begin to think things like, Jesus, don't you see what I'm doing for you? Won't you give me what I want? Jesus, don't you see how good I am? Give me a, give me a little something here. Jesus, don't you see how much I'm doing for you? Aren't you glad, Jesus, I'm on your team? So as we look at, at Cain in chapter four of Genesis, we're going to learn from him three habits of the self-righteous. And I admit that this, is, uh, this outline is meant to be just a touch sarcastic. Three habits of the self-righteous. And I hope they become habits that we avoid. The first habit, or I'll tell you what the three habits are ahead of time. They are that we try to earn God's favor. That's habit number one. Habit number two is that we make obedience contingent. And habit number three is we avoid repentance at all costs. If you want to kill faith in your life, if you want to kill the faith that you have, if you want to keep it from growing and, and, and expanding, do these three things. So right after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden for their sin, we see that they have two sons, right? Cain first and then Abel. And Abel, it says, is the keeper of sheep and Cain is a worker of the ground. And eventually Cain brings an offering to God from the fruit of the ground and, and Abel brings an offering from his flock, from his sheep. But it says that the Lord has regard or he accepts Abel's offering and yet he rejects, he does not have regard for Cain's offering. And so Cain's face, or he's angry, and it says his face falls. The phrase here is probably, uh, it's probably best to understand it, less in like uh, anger, angry rage, but more like a depression. Cain is depressed by this reality. Now you might think to yourself, as you read this, you might think, well, that's a bummer for Cain. Man, he got the, he got the raw end of of this deal. Why is his sacrifice no good? We, we can look forward into the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four, we get a little bit of an answer. In fact, we get a, a huge answer to this. It says there, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, implied Cain's offering was not given in faith. It was not given 
by faith. And Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do you get that? That without faith, whatever you do, your deeds, your actions, no matter how much you do, they will not please God, period. It says that Abel's sacrifice was the firstborn and the fat portions, the best stuff, but Cain's was generically an offering of the fruit of the ground. You see, this is a surface representation of a more important spiritual reality. The quality of the stuff that is offered matters not for its own quality, but because it represents the quality of the heart of those who are offering it. Abel's faith was in God. His faith was not in his own effort. His faith was not in his sacrifice and how good it was. His heart trusted in God that he was accepted by God. And so he brought a sacrifice that reflected his grateful heart. Lord, you have accepted me. Lord, you are my God. And so, man, I'm so grateful for that. And I will give you the best of what I have. Cain, however, sought to gain God's acceptance through his sacrifice. His faith and trust was in his own effort and his offering was a mere token. Think about it this way. Imagine, imagine a husband has just perfect confidence in his wife's love for him. He knows his wife loves him. He knows that even if he messes up, his wife will continue to, to love him. His wife has committed her life to him, that, that she'll always love him, and he has perfect confidence in that. And so he's so thankful for his wife's love and his, and his wife's acceptance that he wants to do something for her. He wants to buy something for her. Now, guys, how hard is it to get the right gift for your wife? I mean, that's, that's a tough task. I find it to be a tough task. Uh, most I'll just tell you most, uh, if you add up all the birthdays and all the Christmases and all the Valentine's days that we've had uh, in, you know, how many ever years it's been that a man and I, since a man and I started dating, I would guess that I have failed at buying a good gift more times than I have succeeded. It can be hard. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. And so this husband, he thinks hard and he, he buys his wife a gift that he believes, man, she's going to love this gift. But when he gives it to her, he can see by the look on her face. He knows his wife. He can see by the look on her face. She's being nice about it. Oh, thank you, honey. This is fantastic. You've gotten that before, husbands? This is, I, oh, Yes, this will be very useful, yeah. He knows that she, it's not what she wanted. It, it, he knows that, that it, didn't, it didn't strike the, the right chord. And, and so what does he do? He may wish that he had gotten the right thing the first time, but he knows that she still loves him. So he doesn't despair. He's not depressed. He just tries to discover the thing that she really wants because his heart is not to earn her love, he already has that. His heart 
is to please her because of how much she loves him. But if his concern is a need to prove himself, if, if his concern is, gosh, if I don't earn her love, her love might go to someone else, well, then he's going to be incredibly frustrated and, and depressed, right? He'll despair that he missed the mark because ultimately his, current, his concern is earning the acceptance that he feels like he needs or he so desperately wants from her. That is to say, his goal is to get something immaterial from her for himself by giving something material to his wife. That's not love, that's a transaction. That's like, a, it's like striking a deal with someone. His motivation in the end isn't actually for his wife. His motivation is selfish. If you'd like to be self-righteous, friends, then try to earn God's favor. Work really hard in order to earn God's favor, and I promise it will produce self-righteousness instead of faith in your heart. To adapt a quote from Timothy Keller, he says this, self, self-righteousness says, I obey So I should be accepted. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ says, I am accepted, so I'll obey. It's it's an important distinction. So when our hearts, when our heart motivation is to earn God's favor, it opens the door for our second habit, our second self-righteous habit, that is making obedience contingent. You see, our hearts say, sure, God, I'll obey if you fill in the blank. Now, we might not ever vocalize that, but that often is what our heart is saying. God, I will obey you. Sure, I'll do that if you do this for me, if you make sure this continues to happen for me. But like the older brother in the parable, we're really good at disguising that heart motivation, are we not? So what God does in his mercy, and this is amazing, what God does in his mercy is he gives us what I like to call high emotion moments. You know what that is, those high emotion moments? Those pressure cooker kind of circumstances? When God rejects Cain and his sacrifice, it hurts It's a high emotion moment for him. He begins to say, well, I did what what I was supposed to. Why didn't I get what I was supposed to get? High emotion moments reveal our hearts and our true intentions. We may look good when everything is going well. We may do right when everything is going how it should. But when that pressure cooker moment happens, then we find out what's truly Inside. In the story of the prodigal son, when the younger brother returns, it's a high emotion moment. There's a lot of past history, a lot of pain, a lot of hardship. The younger brother's actions left the father and the older brother devastated financially, right? They've been living with that reality and there's this present tension. What do I say? How do I act? Can I even forgive my brother? And then there's these future concerns. Well, what's gonna happen now that my brother's back and now that my father has accepted him as a son again? What, what does that mean for my inheritance? Now do I end up with a fourth of my dad's inheritance? 
when he dies? Will he split it again then? And so then out comes the older brother's real motivations, right? Rather than obeying his father, he objects. And when Cain's sacrifice isn't accepted by his, like his brothers, his response is anger and depression. But, but God gets to the heart of it right away in our passage, does he not? He says to him, if you do well, if you do well, that is, if in faith your heart is for me, for God, then you'll be accepted. If you continue in self-righteousness, then friend, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is ready to take you. Sin is primed for that pressure cooker moment. Once you no longer believe that obedience will satisfy what's truly motivating you, sin will overwhelm you. It's just waiting for the opportunity. But God shows him he has two options. God says, look, option one, sin, sin's desire is contrary to you. Sin wants to rule over you. Option two, you've got to rule over it. You rule over your sin. Romans 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 17 says it like this. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, having become, have you, uh, sorry. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Did you catch that? It says obedient, not just on the outside, but obedient from the heart. That's what it looks like to be obedient with faith. If you do what God commands, not because, not because if, if I do what God commands, not because I love God, but because I believe it will get me something else I want, then I'm not being obedient to God at all, am I? I'm being obedient to myself, to my own desires. God is merely the means through which I'm getting the thing that I want. And as soon as I don't get that, through God as, as the means, then I will do something else. And that, friends, is the heart of self-righteousness. And like the older son, it reveals that being with the father was never what mattered most to him. Having the father's stuff was what mattered most to him. And I wonder how many of us, church, are more concerned with what God gives us than we are concerned with having God himself. His obedience was contingent, and so was Cain's, because as soon as Cain didn't get what he wanted and Abel got it instead, Cain rose up and killed him. Alternatively, 
if we recognize our utterly desperate state outside of Christ, that our, that our self-righteous acts don't make us better than others, that, that Christ didn't die for us because we were, just, we were just a little bit better than other people. And so, you know, so I'm a little bit more deserving of salvation. And so God died for me, but he didn't die necessarily for those sinners over there. But we realize that actually we all are sinners. We all are rebels. We all were enemies of God when he died for us. And that because of his work, for us on the cross, we don't need to earn God's favor, that we've already received it through Jesus Christ. It's been granted to us for free as a gift. He has removed the shackles of sin that were hanging on us. And we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we can live for him. When we realize this, we want to obey no matter the circumstance. Our obedience is not contingent. Think about this. There's an interesting law in Exodus 21. The Israelites had been slaves for generations in Egypt, right? So the, the people who would be reading Genesis chapter four first were, had been slaves in Egypt and were now traveling to the promised land through the wilderness and they're reading this. Now, now there's a law in Exodus 21 for them and, and, and it's this, this amazing provision. If an Israelite had a debt or whatever uh, and to pay it off, he had to become a slave to another Israelite, let's say, or to another person. Then they would be a slave for six years max and then on the seventh year, they would be released, no matter what, from slavery. Remember, we talked about the Sabbath a few months ago, and, and that was part of the Sabbath, that, that if you were a slave to someone on the seventh year, you would be released. But, but there's this amazing provision. If the slave realized, I love my master. I love working for him. I love living in his household. I love being with him. I love my wife and my kids that are here with me as well. This is my family now. And, and freedom may actually result in more hunger and more homelessness, more nakedness, more loneliness than staying a slave to my loving and generous master. Then the master would take that slave. This is interesting. Take him to a door, to a doorpost, it says. And he would place his earlobe against the door and he would drive an awe through it. Claire's does a much better job at that. So I would suggest Claire's in the future. But that's what they would do. And that would make that slave the slave to that master forever, for his life. He would say, no, my life is better under you, in submission to you. And I want to stay here for the rest of my life. Friends, this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Jesus has taken care of my debt to sin. He's freed me from it. Now willingly, I make myself his slave. He is my master forever. Willingly, I say, drive that awe through my ear. I'm better with you. I love 
you. It's not contingent. It's not circumstantial. What he says goes, even if I don't like it in the moment, I've decided to do it because I love him. He's given me everything in him is all I really need. And he's already freely given it to me. Self-righteousness obeys God to get things from God. But friends, the gospel, the gospel just wants God. And the more you want God, the less you want sin. It's a mystery to the unrighteous because for them, obedience is always optional. For them, obedience is always transactional. For them, obedience is always in order to get something else. But it's for those of us who have been saved from our sins, obedience is freedom. All that's to say that we still continue to sin at times. That doesn't mean that we don't ever sin again, but Cain gives us this great point of comparison, whereas Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 had to be persuaded by the serpent to sin, Cain in chapter 4, he can't even be dissuaded by God himself, right? God's best argument, and Cain still sins. So in verse eight, Cain, when they're in the field alone, like I said, when the opportunity presents itself, he rises up and he kills his brother, Abel. The one who personifies self-righteousness literally kills the one who personifies faith. And just as Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, God comes to him to seek out the sinner, not to get information, but because he knows what happened, but to give him an opportunity to confess and to repent. But Cain responds differently than Adam and Eve, his parents. Cain avoids repentance at all costs. Look at, look at me, or look with me at this uh, last half of, of Genesis 4. There's three ways that Cain avoids repentance. First, Cain rejects responsibility for his sins. And God asks him, hey, hey, where's your brother? Where's Abel at? And rather than telling a partial truth like Adam and Eve does, he just straight out lies. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. And then he adds on top of that, Am I my brother's keeper? Now, to be sure, it's not his responsibility to be his brother's keeper, but, but by knowingly exaggerating that fact, he is actually fleeing from his true responsibility. What's his true responsibility? Well, his true responsibility is to love his brother, not kill him. His true responsibility is to love his brother, not kill him. See, the repentant person readily confesses, but, but Cain rejects responsibility for sin. Next, God begins to tell him that because of the consequences of his sin, he's gonna be cursed from the ground and he'll be a fugitive and a wanderer. But unlike his parents, Cain protests the consequences of his sin. So not only does he reject the responsibility of it, but he protests sin's consequences. No, this punishment is greater than I can bear. God knows what he can bear better than he does. God knows 
that he has provision for him. God knows and God would have been justified in killing Cain on the spot, would he not have been? You killed your brother, that's your punishment. But God's justice and mercy are rarely evident to the unrepentant person. The unrepentant person only sees the consequences they want to avoid. And rather than protesting the consequences of sin, the repentant person accepts them. One final way that Cain seeks to avoid repentance at all costs. Verse 14 continues, I've lost my uh, purpose, my means of provision. He says, I've lost God's presence and now I'm gonna be running for my life. God, Cain, as with all unrepentant people, is first and foremost concerned with self-protection. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, you're right, God, now that you're confronting me about killing my brother, that was a really bad thing to do. He's dead. That's, I'm, so, I'm so sad. I'm, I'm broken up about the fact that I killed him. No, his one concern is for his own life, saving his own skin. He's worried about what might happen to him, how he might be a victim in the future. The repentant person, however, has concern for others. They're primarily concerned with how their actions have hurt people. They understand what God declares in verse 15, that justice and judgment are in God's hands and he'll protect and he will bring justice perfectly. So here I, I believe is the fundamental difference. Self-righteousness is motivated by fear and insecurity. It may do right, but only to avoid the consequences. We see this we see this all the time in, uh, when, when people are caught in egregious sins and it becomes public, famous people, and they come and they apologize. And what you often hear in their, in their apology is, gosh, I, I'm just really sad that, you know, I did this and I got caught and now this and this has it. And what you, what you hear is not, not grief over the pain they caused someone else, but grief that they got caught and now they have to deal with the consequences of it. Self-righteousness, when it does wrong, it won't repent. It won't confess if it doesn't have to, if it's not forced to. It will try to dodge consequences. It will do whatever protects itself, even at the expense of others. But the person of faith understands that pain and consequences and even confession are not the worst case scenario when we sin. The worst case scenario is what we see in verse 16. Do you see that with me? Look, look at verse 16. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. The worst case scenario, friends, is that we would be away from the presence of God. The older brother missed that a party paled in comparison to a life lived with his father. What then should we do? If you're an unbeliever, if you have not uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your life and for your eternity, 
If you feel like you've been far from the presence of God for a long time and you feel like you're a fugitive and you feel like you are a wanderer, I want you to know this, that thousands of years after Cain was expelled from God's presence, God's presence was not limited to heaven. It was not limited to a particular place, but he came to earth in Jesus Christ, who is the true and better able. Because while Hebrews 12 says, that Abel's blood cries out from the ground for judgment and vindication of sins. Jesus' blood declares cleansing and forgiveness of sins and peace with God for all those who have faith in him. And that could be you today. You see, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Through Christ, you can be forgiven if you repent. Confess your sin. Turn to God. Trust in Jesus with everything. And you might say, well, what if, I, what if I do it wrong? What if I get it wrong? What if I get repentance wrong? God requires true repentance, friend, not perfect repentance. And that's an important distinction. He, he requires true repentance, not perfect repentance, because if we think our repentance has to be perfect, we're just falling into a different kind of self-righteousness, are we not? Truly repent. Trust in faith, because it's by God's grace and not your effort anyways. But church, if you're a believer, what ought we to do? looking at this passage of Cain rising up and killing his brother. What ought we to do? First John 3 actually tells us exactly how we ought to be changed by this story. Read with me or, or listen to me as I read it. It says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Friends, this is not hyperbole. He means what he says. If you persistently refuse to sacrificially love your fellow Christian, every other Christian, you should be concerned about your eternity. I say that because I'm, as your pastor, I care about your souls and I love you. And if there are believers that you just can't get over your hatred for them, that is as good as murder and you should be concerned about your eternity, John says. You say, how, can I, how could I forgive them? How could I love them? Cody, you don't know what they've done. You don't know how they've hurt me. Friends, the passage tells us. It tells us because 
We can lay down our lives for others, not because of what we might get in return, not because they're so fantastic. It's not a transaction, but rather because Christ has already laid down his life for us. And do you not know what you've done to him? There is nothing anyone has done to you that is as bad as what you have done to Jesus Christ. And yet he laid down his life in love for you, period. If we would just grasp that, if I would just grasp that, friends, I'm with you on this struggle. If I would just grasp that, how much easier would it be for me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Friends, the only thing we did to encourage Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. There's nothing in me that was good that made Jesus go, ooh, I wanna save that one. There's nothing that I've done to earn it either before or afterwards. You see, Jesus told the parable of the father and his two sons while a whole slew of self-righteous teachers of the law surrounded him. And at the end, the parable abrupts end, ends abruptly and we wonder, what did the older brother decide? Did he, did he decide to go with his father or did he stay in the field? And that's the point. Because Jesus is looking at these self-righteous teachers of the law and he's saying, what are you going to decide? Are you going to continue to try to earn God's favor? Are you going to continue in your self-righteous habits? Or are you going to come to the party, friends? The party is eternal life. My concern for us church is that there's a whole lot of people who continue to spend time in the father's field and they come to church and they serve in different ways and they do all these things but it's self-righteous and when the end comes they will not go to the party they'll be on the outside i want you at the party will you join your heavenly father Will you continue to trust in yourself and in your good deeds and in what you can do? Or will you trust in God's grace and have faith in Christ instead? Because friends, yes, self-righteousness kills faith, but I've got wonderful hope for you. Faith, friends, kills self-righteousness. Let's pray. God, We're in a weird moment in history. And I wonder about all, the, all those who, who were going to church every single week for years and decades even, and now they, they don't even care to even be around your people, around brothers and sisters in Christ. They have no love for others. And I wonder, God, how many people spent decades actually far from you even though they did things that looked Christian. My heart is burdened for the church in this country, 
in other countries. People who are just trying to earn their salvation when they can't. People who miss out on the wonder of being with you, their father. God, would you bring us, us, this church, me, to repentance for all the ways that that I I try to uh, earn my salvation. I revert back to that. I I, I seek self-righteousness for us as a church. God, would you you reveal our hearts? Would you uh, kill the self-righteousness that exists and give us faith instead? God, would you do that for the church in this country that you would just destroy the self-righteousness that, that so often breeds in our hearts and that you would fill us with faith instead in you and in your son? God, would we not try to earn your favor, but that, that you would help us to understand that you've, your favor has already been granted to us through your sacrifice? Lord, would you bring us to repentance that we wouldn't avoid it, but we would recognize that it actually brings us closer to you. Lord, would our obedience then not be contingent or circumstantial on on things going the way that we like, but that we would be obedient to you and to your word no matter what. I pray. I pray for us here today that that would be true. Pray all this in your name. Amen.